Are you someone who enjoys a good glass of wine but is never sure just what to get? Indulge your inner enophile and take the guesswork out of wine by signing up for the National Review Wine Club. All of our wines are selected by a team with more than 150 years of collective experience buying, judging and making wine. We weed through the thousands of wines out there to select the very best of the best and deliver it straight to your door, all at an unbeatable price. Not only that, the Wine Club is also a great way to support our valuable conservative journalism here at National Review. A portion of every order goes to helping us grow our team and editorial impact. And there's no time better than today. Our introductory special delivers four of our hand-selected wines straight to your door, for only $29.99. So head over to nationalreviewwineclub.com today and get ready to kick back with an exquisite bottle of wine in the comfort of your own home. Welcome to episode two of the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. They let me have a second week, so I've got that going for me. First things first, thank you all so much for listening. I'm hugely grateful for the response. I'm not quite sure how it works, how the algorithm's set up, but the first episode uh, debuted within the top 10 in the news category on Apple Podcasts. And within the top 20 uh, of all categories on Apple Podcasts. And of course, at number one in podcasts that mention President Rutherford B. Hayes on their first episode. I'm absolutely crushing it with that constituency. A friend of mine who listened to the first one wrote to me and said that the theme she had discerned was organized rambling. So I'm going to go with that. Organized rambling. A couple of notes before we get going. The podcast should now be on all major services, Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Deezer, Overcast, Pocketcast, Player FM, TuneIn, Fana, GeoSavan, and RSS. But we're still waiting on Google. On their website, they say that it takes six days after submission for a show to get into the library. We're now on day six, so we will see if they are correct. And uh, while I'm doing this, I should let you all know that you can follow me on Facebook and on Instagram, as well as on Twitter. For all of those links uh, and for all of the podcast subscription links that I just mentioned, just go to podcast.charlescwcook.com. That's podcast.charlescwcook.com. And you should be able to find everything you need, including uh, an easy online player for the show that you can use in your browser if you prefer that than subscribing. Which, of course, brings me to organic chemistry. So there was a piece in the New York Times this week, the title of which, the headline on which, was At NYU, students were failing organic chemistry. Who was to blame? There's a rule in journalism called Betteridge's Law, which holds that any headline that ends in a question mark can be answered by the word no. I think we probably need a corollary here. 
any headline that asks who is to blame can be answered with exactly the people you'd assume. Let me read you a bit from this piece in the, in the Times. In the field of organic chemistry, Maitland Jones Jr. has a storied reputation. He taught the subject for decades, first at Princeton and then at New York University, and wrote an influential textbook. He received awards for his teaching, as well as recognition as one of NYU's coolest professors. But last spring, as the campus emerged from pandemic restrictions, 82 of his 350 students signed a petition against him. Now, that, of course, is the first red flag in the story. Students, as a rule, should not be signing petitions against their professors. If the professor's guilty of something, something genuinely awful, a a crime, a sexual assault, that should be dealt with via the appropriate channels, preferably, yes, with some due process protections. It shouldn't be dealt with by a petition. Petitions in academic settings are, in almost every case, a, a sign that a mob has formed. Back to the story then. Students said the high-stakes course, notorious for ending many a dream of medical school, was too hard, blaming Dr. Jones for their poor test scores. The professor defended his standards, but just before the start of the fall semester, university deans terminated Dr. Jones's contract. And this is the point at which the Times begins to muddy the water. In short, this is the Times again, In short, this one unhappy chemistry class could be a case study of the pressures on higher education as it tries to handle its Gen Z student body. Should universities ease pressure on students, many of whom are still coping with the pandemic's effects on their mental health and schooling, and how hard should organic chemistry be anyway? Now look, I don't really like stereotypes about generations. I'm not focusing in this sentence on Gen Z. I don't think it's true that all young people are useless or whatever, but this question at the end, how hard should organic chemistry be anyway, is ludicrous. Organic chemistry should be as hard as organic chemistry is, which I'm quite happy to admit up front is too hard for me. I would fail this class. There's no question about that. I'd probably fail it instantly. I don't think I'd get in. This isn't how my brain works. I I would like to be able to do organic chemistry, but I can't. At least I, I can't do it well enough to go on to be a doctor. But there's no indication that the teaching was bad. Here's here's the Times. Dr. Jones, 84, that's quite a long career, is known for changing the way the subject is taught. In addition to writing the 1,300-page textbook, Organic Chemistry, now in its fifth edition, he pioneered a new method of instruction that relied less on rote memorization and more on problem-solving. So, (laughs) this is one of those issues where I really just can't believe what I'm reading. Let me read this again. Should universities ease pressure on students, many of whom are still coping with the pandemic's effects on their mental health and schooling? So the obvious answer to that 
is no. Again, I would fail this class. There's no question. It's just not what I'm good at. And I deserve to fail it. Even if I tried hard, even if I cared, I would fail. But I would also fail everything that came after it. And why are people taking it? Here's the times. More of them, that's the student, enrolled in his class hoping to pursue medical careers. So that's pretty important, isn't it? And this isn't any old school, this is NYU. This is a prerequisite to medicine. And medicine, at least in this sense, is not subjective. You cannot write your way out of it. You can't charm your way out of it. You can't petition your way out of it or protest your way out of it or vote your way out of it. You can't even argue your way out of it. It's not contextual. It's not cultural. It's not political. It, it just is. You can't, when you're discussing it, invoke social constructs or inequities or habits or ways of knowing or learning or thinking. It's more akin to engineering than it is to English literature. Now, back when I was a, a teenager, I used to have fun in my English classes by seeing how pretentious I could get before the teacher noticed. We'd actually take bets as to who could win this silly game. And it was a silly game, but look, I was 17. I wrote a newsletter about this recently. Our teacher would read us, say, William Blake. It's always William Blake. The weeping parents wept in vain. Are such things done on Albion shore? And then one of us would put up our hand and we would say something like, while trying not to laugh, Yes, yes, it's, it's malleable, if not entirely slim, isn't it? Somehow it's, it's both soft and harsh. From a certain perspective, wept and vain are rhymes. And, and in one sense, aren't we all on Albion's shore? And then another student would jump in, Oh, I, I wouldn't say malleable exactly, more like um, morose. And hearing it aloud, I, I get a certain leatheriness in the texture with, with a frisson of titillation. The, the poem is fearful. It's a fear, as Shakespeare might have said. Seen upside down, it's even aghast. And then sometimes we'd get caught, and sometimes we wouldn't. But the thing is, if you kept close enough to the text, if you kept a straight face, you might get away with it. Especially if you sprinkled in some less ridiculous observations. And that's because a lot of English literature, a subject I was good at, is playing tennis without a net. But medicine's not, and nor is engineering. There's a creative side to both of those I accept. There are judgment calls, but the, the data that people use to make those calls, the prerequisite parts, the foundational parts, those are not subjective. And you can't hide much behind rhetoric or silliness even. The bridge, it either stands up or it doesn't. The airplane either flies or it doesn't. The cable either transmits or it doesn't. Now, back in September 1999, after almost 10 months of travel to Mars, the uh, Mars climate orbiter famously blew up when it followed the wrong trajectory. Now, why? Well, because at some point in the development process, the engineers had failed to notice that the acceleration data had been provided in inches and feet uh, and converted them into metric. 
I don't understand this fully, not my area. But basically, the acceleration readings for the Mars Climate Orbiter were in pound seconds. It's a measurement. But the engineers thought they were in newton seconds, which they weren't. So the whole thing went kaboom. Went to the wrong place, wrong atmospheric conditions, wrong speed, what you will, bang. You can't get around that. <laughs> when that happens, it doesn't matter how creative you are. You're lost. And organic chemistry is the same. When you go to a doctor for a second opinion, you're not asking him to change the way the input data is measured. You're asking in, well, almost every case, what he thinks of it, how he would treat it. And I can absolutely guarantee you that nobody at that stage in the chain, as customers, as patients, is interested in questions such as, should universities ease pressure on students, many of whom are still coping with the pandemic's effects on their mental health and schooling? The only thing anyone cares about at that point is if their malady is going to be fixed, if they're going to wake up or not on the operating table. Whatever issues we might have in America, and we do, with our economic system or our racial history or with anything really, university organic chemistry classes are not the places to fix it. We have to fix it elsewhere. We have to fix it earlier. We have to fix it outside of the classroom. There is no point complaining after the fact. There is no point signing petitions. There is no point talking about mental health or schooling or saying it's too hard or you don't like the questions. There's no allegation in this piece that this teacher was insufficient. In fact, all of the details that the New York Times provides suggests the opposite. So he's a doctor, Dr. Jones. He's 84, still teaching. He's won awards for that teaching. He's known for changing the way the subject's taught. He wrote a 1,300-page textbook on organic chemistry that's called Organic Chemistry, that is in its fifth edition. And he is famous for developing a new method of instruction that relies not on rote memorization, although I'm sure that's important to some degree, but on problem-solving. And the problems that these people are supposed to solve, as the piece confirms, are those that would arise when they pursue medical careers. And this is just lunacy. I hope everyone who read this story, or if you didn't read it, you just heard about it, can see that this is lunacy. Because whatever other issues you might have with education and you know, school boards in cities or states you dislike. To have this stuff infecting the organic chemistry class at NYU is really something new. I think often those of us who are critical of higher education, as I absolutely am, like to think that the silliness that we see in the arts can't really translate. Either that it won't translate to the real world because once people get a job, 
they'll grow up, or that it won't translate into hard sciences or engineering or what you will, because it's incompatible. Well, this 84-year-old organic chemistry professor just got fired. And he says at the end of the piece that he doesn't want his job back, but he wants to make sure that this doesn't happen to anyone else. And I think we should all want to make sure that this doesn't happen to anyone else. And now it is my absolute pleasure to welcome to the Charles C.W. Cook podcast, Gareth Russell, who I must confess is not some rando that I found on the internet or picked up off the street, but was in fact a great friend of mine at university. And this part of the show, I I think, breaks new ground, Gareth, because this is probably going to be the longest conversation that we have ever had without a drink. Speak for yourself. No. um... (laughs) Well, it's one o'clock here. I did think about it. I'll be honest with you. I did think about it. Anyhow. Um, No, no, in fairness, actually, it is. It's, I mean, I think the longest record is probably pushing about 20 minutes. So I don't, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's surreal to be doing this with you without a drink. (laughs) Anyhow, Gareth has written a whole bunch of books. Uh, he's written a book about the Titanic. He's written a book about the emperors of Europe. He's written a book about Catherine Howard, who was the fifth wife of Henry VIII, called Young and Damned and Fair. And I think I'm right in saying you were on the most recent PBS documentary, which is about Anne Boleyn. Is that correct? It was, yeah. It was. It was, That was sort of um, three parts shot at the the height or depth of lockdown so it was a uh, maybe not the depth it was certainly circling uh to the fifth or sixth level of the inferno of lockdown uh so it was an interesting experience but it, yeah it's a three-part uh, documentary about um her within the context of her family yeah no it was fascinating and uh, tragic and salacious but your new book is less weighty i think mm. than some of your other work, but no less entertaining. It is Do Let's Have Another Drink, as a theme, The Dry (laughs) Wit and Fizzy Life of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. Now, you ought to introduce, especially to an American audience, the Queen Mother, because although she's called Elizabeth, and she was at one point called Queen, she's not uh, the lady who just died. No, she's not. I put a little... um preface or prefix into the book uh, to explain the the varying uh, carousel wheels of queenly titles in Britain. But uh, Elizabeth, uh, the Elizabeth II, she passed away in uh, this year, was the daughter of the woman who do let's have another drink is about. She uh, lived for 101 years, uh, which is why there's 101 anecdotes in the book. She was born a Scottish aristocrat, Lady Elizabeth Bowes Lyon, in 1900. She married into the British royal family in 1923. Her brother-in-law, Edward VIII, gave up the throne to marry Wallace Simpson in 1936, which catapulted Elizabeth's husband, his brother, onto the throne as George VI. Uh, And they were king and queen consort, wife of the ruling monarch, through the years of the Second World War. Cinema aficionados may recognise her uh, and that story from the King's Speech, where she was played by Helena Bonham Carter. And during the years of the Second World War, she was so popular 
and defiant about the British war effort that Adolf Hitler paid her, I think, probably the compliment of a lifetime when he called her the most dangerous woman in Europe. Her husband passed away in 1952, at which point she received the title of Queen Mother because she was a widowed queen and the mother of a new sovereign. So that's how you get that title. And she held it for 50 years until she passed away in 2002. And yes, as do let's have another drink, as the title shows, um, she was both an immensely uh, tough lady. She was very patriotic, th- um, thoroughgoing in her duties, but she also enjoyed a good time. It's a bit of a double-edged sword getting a compliment from Adolf Hitler, isn't it? Because you can't tell that many people about it. No, she she really did. when he called her the most dangerous woman in Europe, she apparently really didn't like it because it kind of implied that he wasn't afraid of her husband, her husband's appeal in the way that she he was you know sort of in awe of hers, and he was very disappointed that a bomb didn't kill her when the, when it was aimed at Buckingham Palace because he, she would not leave London. I mean, you, you you'll know this, Charles. Miss sort of, it's sort of quite iconic within British historical lord that she would not leave London during the Nazi bombing raids. And Hitler felt that her refusal to leave was really shoring up the British war effort in a big way. So yeah, I think when you get it when you get um, a begrudging compliment from Adolf Hitler, you can feel pretty good about yourself that he that he doesn't like you. But you also have to be quite careful that you don't go around bragging about it. You know, it it's um it it is both a double edged sword and a and a bomb skimming its way towards Buckingham Palace. So let, let's talk a little bit about her becoming queen, or rather her husband becoming king. Now, as you suggested, many people will know about the queen mother from the movie The King's Speech, and they will therefore know that she didn't expect to find herself married to a king. You know, this was one of the themes in many of the obituaries of Queen Elizabeth II, that she was not supposed to be queen. The only reason she ends up as queen uh, is because of the abdication. And in fact, her husband, uh, the queen mother's husband, did not expect to be king either and thought himself in some respects ill-suited to it. So she's suddenly thrust into this and she's kind of annoyed about it, right? That that is a um, superb British understatement. Um, <laughs> she she uh, takes her fury at this, and under the pressure of becoming queen so unexpectedly, that pressure turns the fury into an, an absolute diamond of hatred for her for her strange brother-in-law who did this to them and his wife Wallace Simpson. So you're absolutely right. She certainly did not expect to become queen by marriage and she, they her and um, the prince who would become George VI had been married for 13 years by this stage and one of the things I find out while researching the book was she had been reluctant as fond as she was of of her husband her future husband, when they met in the London social world of 1920, she did not want to even marry into the British royal family. I describe her father, uh, the Earl of Strathmore, as a royalist without much interest in the royals. I mean, he supported the monarchy, but he couldn't think of anything worse than, than marrying into the royal family. And so she, even marrying a younger son, had felt that her entire life would be sacrificed to a certain level of public attention and service to the nation and you know when she when she married him she did commit to that but it was always as a junior royal and then in the space of 10 extraordinary months her father-in-law george v died at the start of 1936 her brother-in-law becomes edward the eighth 
and is just an absolutely spectacularly bad king by any standards. In fact, um, Noel Coward once said that they should have erected a statue of Wallace Simpson in every village in Britain because she'd spared them from having Edward VIII as their king. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, he, he wants to marry Wallace Simpson, a divorced socialite. He is rumoured at this stage even to be and bear in mind, appeasement's still rampant in British foreign policy at this stage. That you know, being a fascist is not uh, in 1936. It was not um, unusual among the British elite. But even within that milieu, Edward VIII's level of sympathy for Nazism was considered pretty worrying. Uh, likewise, his complete disinterest in reading government documents or conferring with his prime minister. So, for you know, the abdication when he gives up the throne in order to marry Wallace in December 1936 is, from a constitutional and historical perspective, a wonderful thing for Britain. I mean, my God, can you imagine having Edward VIII on the throne when we were trying to fight the Nazis? It would have been horrendous for the for the country and the war effort. But hindsight was not granted to Elizabeth at that stage. She saw her husband, who had a severe speech impediment, who was very insecure. Uh, we would probably say now I had anxiety or, you know, there was certainly something there. It, and he was given some, I mean, about three days notice, by the way, I'm going to be abdicating on Thursday and you'll be king. So they, it, it really was something that she had to work very hard at because her husband was in a state of shock when he became King Charles. So she really, uh, she had that sort of Scottish grit and determination. And she got, you know, got him the speech therapist. She started to seal him off from influences that she thought would exacerbate his insecurity. And she always was very clear that what she was doing was trying to enable her husband to showcase the duty and strength that she knew she, uh, he had. But certainly, she, I mean, she absolutely never forgave her brother-in-law who gave up the throne or his wife. I mean, she just felt that it was an act bordering on treason to have put themselves ahead of duty to the country. So she doesn't especially want to be involved in the royal family. She accepts a secondary role, married to somebody who is unlikely ever to become the king. Suddenly, in 1937, he becomes the king. And then... 15 years later, he dies really yeah. young. Yeah. And then what? Well, she's. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, this was something that, I don't know if you come across this yourself, because it was something that sounds both obvious and, and quite surprising, which is that sometimes if you're studying the royals or the elite or the famous, you tend to think in the past, you tend to think the way they did things was really unusual. And odd. And actually, you then realize that, that society was doing that. And one of the things that I found out was she, when George VI got his terminal cancer diagnosis, she wasn't told. And I thought this was, I mean, beyond baffling. But when I talked about it with my grandmother and one of my great great uncles he said oh no no in the 1950s that was standard everyone did that you just didn't you just didn't talk about it in the way that you would today so she knew he he was sick she knew obviously her husband had cancer and she was devastated he got the diagnosis not long after their silver wedding um anniversary but she and her younger daughter, Princess Margaret, both thought the removal of a section of his lung had bought him years, that there were going to be years left to him. And he died at 56 in February uh, 1952. And she goes through a process of shock, which, I mean, I, I know lots of people will know this from their own process of grieving. It's almost worse after the funeral. 
the, the kind of the delayed nature of grief. She wobbles for about 10 months. She's, she goes north to Scotland to stay with friends. Uh, people are sending her books of poetry and the Bible. Winston Churchill travels to see her and says, you know, I know that you're devastated, but you can't retire from public life. You're too popular. You still have a duty. And that was probably one of the things I find most uh, somewhere between inspiring and relatable about her, which is obviously everyone goes through grief in a different way. But for me, there was something uh, quite reassuring and convincing about the old school way that she did it, which is, you know, admit you're really sad and you're devastated, but go for a walk, go out and meet people when you can. And she talks about, that. you know, one of the remedies to her grief was the sting of the wind in Scotland and going out and meeting people again and doing her duty and that, that sitting down and trying to stay too still and focus too much on grief and talk about your trauma just enabled it to batter you around a bit more and it doesn't actually help you move on from it. So she she got back to sort of doing the meet and greet and the and she kept doing all these public engagements until 2001 was her last. I spoke to someone who was her last sort of public meeting in December 2001 when she was 101. And but she also, you know, there was there was obviously less pressure. You know, being queen mother is different to being queen consort during the Second World War. And she started, you know, she said by the end of the 1960s, if she wasn't working that day, she would wake up and her first thought would be, What does Elizabeth want to do today? And she loved a drink, she loved eating. And really, her life was 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 lived almost in an Edwardian way, going from one, you know, she had a house up in the north of Scotland and a house in the centre of London, and that's what she divided her time between. So I was able to meet quite a few people who had known her, and they told some brilliant, brilliant stories. Um, one that was told secondhand was she became quite good friends with Alec Guinness, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. And he was quite depressed because he had done what he described as a um, space cowboy movie that he didn't think was going to do quite well that turned out to be Star Wars. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He he did not recognize the full potential of Star Wars and New Hope. And he was telling this to the Queen Mother and she was saying that she sort of had a bit of a spell of depression. So she's, yeah, so she's, uh, thrust into this new role again 1952 her daughter elizabeth becomes queen and is crowned in 1953 and then she plays that role yeah publicly and i say plays that role of course she's always going to be queen elizabeth's mother but she played the role of queen elizabeth's mother in public for 50 years until she died now when she died and i should fill this in for the americans in the audience too she was beloved in a way that is quite difficult to convey because she's apolitical. So there's no real distinction between those on the left or the right or the no. north or the south who like her. There is no baggage attached to her. But, and here's my question, she hasn't actually been queen consort for 50 years. The heroism of the war years is long gone in most people's memories and imaginations. Why was she so popular? So I think part of it is that it was, you know, the Second World War. I mean, this is where I think there probably is a a, a cultural touchstone between Britain and America, which is that the Second World War continues to hold a great deal of uh, cultural respect in both countries, 
political discourse, you know, the greatest generation. And she, for a lot of British people, was almost the avatar of the greatest generation. The other thing I would think is that there is the element of that past greatness, but people were quite fond of her, um, I don't know what the right word is, but the larger-than-life personality. People quite liked that she was known to enjoy a tipple or three. <laughs> and people, you could always see this little spark in her in her eyes you know she people could you know she these one liners that she had were already quite famous when she died and you're right i remember i was i remember when she died in 2002 and people were they weren't hysterically grief stricken in the way they were when diana died 5 years before that because it's different that was a young person you know the queen mother lived to 101 but i think it's it's also quite difficult for us to to fully appreciate that she was that popular and beloved because the revisionists have certainly set to work since. And anyone who is familiar with the ratings juggernaut that is The Crown on Netflix, where she is increasingly portrayed as just horrendous. And uh, a friend of mine, I think actually, well, they were at uni with us, but they said, um, you know, she's gotten to the stage now where they're portraying her as a cross between Cruella de Vil and Richard III. So I think it's, it's even more difficult for us to fully appreciate with that, cultural takedown that's happened since she died just how popular she was so why did they do that in the crown was it just trying to introduce tension where none exists yeah i think so i think what's it it's it's also yeah i think what they if you were watching it the way i was there were bits where she contradicted herself basically if they needed someone to say something horrible and snobbish they gave it to her and a lot, you know, it was. it's a very, very sympathetic portrayal of Princess Margaret, which in 2002 is probably not a sentence I ever thought I'd be saying. Because if you remember, I mean, Charles, you'll know this, when we were growing up, Princess Margaret has to have been among the least popular members of the royal yeah, family. no question. And The Crown has done what well, I've never seen a public relations turn around like it. Princess Margaret, Princess Margaret is now considered like a force for egalitarianism and living your free best life. And you, like that, I mean, she's a fascinating character, but absolutely I would not put Princess Margaret down as, uh, as that kind of person. So what I think they did was they put a lot, they made her, the Queen Mother, really the two-dimensional face of obfuscating duty and tradition and she's you know she's really just a character of a mean old lady it i don't i think it probably is to, to get to allow other characters to be rehab really radically rehabilitated all right so what don't you like about her what what did you discover during the writing of the book that made you think, look, here was a flaw she had, or here, here was a mistake she made. Yeah, there were a couple, Charles. I think probably for me, the first, the, the one that it, it's less sinister, but it certainly was a problem that seemed to get worse as she got older, but it was definitely there younger. Martin Gilliatt, who was a courtier, set calls at her ostriching, and that if there was something she didn't like, or that might in any way cause her inconvenience. She stuck her head in the sand and pretended she couldn't see it. And to a certain degree, in the age before mass media, you probably could get away with that. But really, I think what that did, that because she had such a matriarchal influence on the royal family, even after her daughter became the monarch in 1952, it, I think that ostriching on her from her mother's side really influenced the monarchy 
to to an extent that there were things that they just didn't confront and it really caused problems later and i think it was that whole attitude to me was largely responsible for the complete mess the monarchy was in by the early 1990s and just the refusal to confront the problems with charles and diana it was a case of if we don't look at it it'll go away and that just does not work and i think you can still see a little bit of that right the way up to the duke and duchess of sussex i think there's the, the i think that attitude the queen mother had play, had a because of her longevity and then her daughters i think that had a really long-reaching role in how the monarchy responded uh to certain but problems harry that, and Meghan, right yeah sorry harry and Meghan. yeah i think it, i i mean maybe slightly less so i mean it's certainly fading but i i do think that attitude was injected into the monarchy by Elizabeth Bowes Lyon. Because I, when you look back at people like Queen Mary, her mother-in-law, or Queen Victoria in the 19th century, they were um, compulsive interferers with anything and anything to do um, with uh, royal crises or their family. Elizabeth Bowes Lyon really is the, is the queen of ostriching. And that, I think, was a trait that showed a certain amount. Yes, it, it protected her. At a certain point, but I think long term it had it had a negative impact on the monarchy. The other thing was that, and it's slightly linked to that. She had she had an Olympian ability to hold a grudge, and the grudges could could go on for decades because she didn't want to see or talk to the people that she'd fallen out with. So those were two the the ostriching and the grudge holding that I think were less than pleasant. And what's your favourite story from the book? Countess Mountbatten died. Countess Mountbatten, uh, the Queen Mother never really liked her that much, but she's very glamorous, globe-trotting. And Countess Mountbatten asked to be buried at sea. And when the Queen Mother heard, she said, oh, dear old Edwina always did like to make a splash. <laughs> and I, I just thought that that was the right level of a good one-liner and also not letting go of the fact that she didn't really like her. Uh, so yeah, there were, there were a lot of one-liners that I thought really made me laugh, but that one always stuck in my head a bit. So I'm going to take you off this topic for my final question and ask the question that I get asked constantly. I know. Which is, do you think that Charles, uh-huh. King Charles III now, is going to be a good king? I do, uh, partly because I, th- I mean, I was doing some of the coverage here during the accession proclamation, and I was really impressed by the opening, by his first address to the country as king. It was as if to, I'm not sure this metaphor holds in terms of gravitas, but it was as if he took a bowling ball and just knocked out every speculative pin that had been there for, for years about, you know, what would his wife's title be called? Would Harry and Meghan be coming back? Would he ever abdic- abdicate? He dealt with it really well. It will be, I mean, certainly just from, from what I experienced in those 10 days with the reporting, I got the impression of a much more proactive monarchy, which kind of leads back to what we were saying about that ostriching tendency dying uh, and fading out from how the monarchy interacts. They were, they were so ahead of the curve with a lot of, they kind of got ahead of problems that week and i think that set the tone i i don't um i think he's probably going to be helped by the fact that the elected government at the minute is um less than popular and seems to be less than competent so in some i mean there's a feeling at the minute that the government in Westminster under Prime Minister Liz Truss is is frighteningly out of touch with the north of England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Whereas you had 
the political parties in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, even those in Northern Ireland who are in favour of a united Irish Republic being, you know, they, they say Charles is someone that they can complement and work with in terms of ceremonial events. So I think he's going to, he's going to benefit by being uh, contrasted with the government for a while. So my instinct is, yes, he will be, but I don't imagine for a single minute there aren't challenges ahead for him. All right, so he will be, and if he's not, he's, it's your fault, is what I should take from that. 100%. It's essentially a promise, maybe a, a blood oath. you go, Charles threw out, <laughs> threw out the, um, throughout the, those 10 days of doing the coverage, there were so many times where I thought, this is going to be the quote that is played back to me for years to come if I get this wrong. And sometimes <laughs> you do, you're like, what do you think is going to happen to the United Kingdom? I'm like, what? Well, all of it. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then you, you have to, and they're like, Gareth, just very quickly before we go, I'm like, I can actually hear the beat coming in for the adverts. And you're going to ask me like, what do you think is going to happen long-term with the country, the Commonwealth and just global politics in general? Like it was really, so do you think the apocalypse is nigh? Like, it's just, it's really, it, 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 um, so yeah, I mean, you can add this, to, I mean, absolutely. Let's play it back in a year when, I don't know, the French Revolution has swept Britain. All right. All right. Well, how do people get hold of this book? When's it out? It is out November 1st in the US with Simon and Schuster. So you can buy it online or from all good bookstores. And there's also an audiobook and ebook available. All right. Well, Gareth Russell, thank you so much for coming on the Charles T.W. Cook podcast. Thank you for having me. This is going to be the first Q&A. I got quite a lot of questions from you. I thought I would answer three of them and keep the other ones for a different day, different week. So here we go. Question one. Do the British really drink as much in reality as they do on the British TV shows? Everyone has a bottle and even the cops are drinking on the job. What's up with this? Short answer, yes. So I wanted to make sure this wasn't just anecdotal. So I actually looked this up and I discovered that there was a recent international survey of 36 nations. Survey doers asked 120,000 people around the world how much they drank. And the finding was that Brits like to get smashed more than any other nation. Britons were drunk, well, drunk, not even drinking, 51.1 times in a 12-month period. So it's pretty much every week of the year. Now, Americans, I discovered, actually don't drink very much compared to the British. So there's really three groups each representing about a third of the population in the United States. One doesn't drink at all, one third, 33% of Americans. Another 33% drinks maybe one beer a week, if that. And then the final 33% drinks more. And within that, there are three fairly discrete layers. About a third of that third drinks, let's say, a healthy amount, and then the next group drinks an unhealthy amount, and then the top group drinks an astonishing amount. So I think British people, from what I can see, do drink more than Americans, because about half of British people drink, compared to about, functionally, a third of Americans. The, the one part of this, though, that I think is probably inaccurate is that the cops are drinking on the job. Maybe in the 70s. I think that's unlikely now. 
The place where cops drink on the job is France. There was an absolutely hilarious story about five, six years ago out of France where a French special police SWAT team was complaining, maybe even went on strike, because they had been told they were no longer allowed to drink wine at lunch. Now, I think drinking wine at lunch is, generally speaking, a good idea. Not if you're in a SWAT team. So that, that's perhaps where the French are, are out on a limb, where even the British would not be. Question two. I know you're a great enthusiast for sports, including American football and baseball, but you grew up with soccer. What would you say is your favorite sport, and has it changed the longer you've been in America? My favorite sport's football, and it has changed the longer I've been in America. If you had asked me five years ago what my favorite sport was, I would have said baseball in the United States and soccer in the UK. Now it's football in the United States and football hands down. You just can't beat the excitement of it. I just noticed myself during a game getting so much more stressed by football than I do by baseball or by soccer. Now, you could say that's partly because there aren't many football games. When you have 17 in an NFL season, and 17 only if you're the Jacksonville Jaguars most years, and you have 10, 11, 12 in a college football season, whereas there are 38 Premier League soccer games every season and 162 baseball games. So maybe it's partly because there's less football and it means more. I mean, outside of postseason baseball or, you know, a knockout tournament or really important game in soccer, if your team loses, you say, okay, we'll win next week. But with football, it adds up pretty quickly. So that's maybe partly it. But I also just think, as a sport, football is magic. I mean, it's a sport that that changes in a split second. The athleticism is extraordinary. The way that it unfolds, I've come to appreciate more over time. I wrote a newsletter recently saying football is opera. It sounds a bit pretentious, but my point was when you're young and you first hear opera, it's all noise. You have 10, 15 people singing at once and... It all blends together and it's difficult to really grab onto anything, especially if it's in Italian or German or a language you don't speak well. Football was the same. When I first moved to the US, I would watch it and I never knew where the ball was. You know, every feint, every fake tricked me. I didn't see how the game developed. I didn't see how the defense lined up. I, I just, I couldn't see anything except those plays where the quarterback steps backwards and throws the ball through the air and it's caught cleanly. But now, and I'm not an expert by any means, now I see a great deal because I have watched so much of it. And you can see whether the team is is good or bad. I mean, you can see whether the offensive line works, you can see whether the defense works. Um, and the more time I've spent, which is also true of opera for what it's worth, the more time I've spent watching football, the more I've come to appreciate it as a, as a complex and, and beautiful game. So my favorite sport, football. Final question. I enjoyed your guest appearance on the Beatles episode of the Political Beats podcast. Thank you. 
I can't imagine how many hours of preparation went into those episodes. Will Political Beats listeners be hearing from you again soon? Which artist or artists would you like to cover if you're invited? Also, would you consider having Jeff and Scott as guests on your podcast? So Alistair Cook, no relation, the British-American writer, was once asked how long it took him to write his book, America, which I actually have on my bookshelf here. It's brilliant. If you haven't read it, you must. There's also a TV series he made from the book. Uh, And he said, I'm not being coy, but it took me my whole life. I didn't actually prepare for the Beatles episode because I've been thinking about and talking about and listening to the Beatles my whole life. I love the Beatles. (laughs) I'm just such a huge Beatles fan. And, you know, I think I first found the Beatles when I was a kid. And with the Fleetwood Mac episode we did, I I did have to go back and listen carefully. I didn't have to listen to Fleetwood Mac, the album, uh, or Rumours again, because I've listened to them so many times. But all of the early stuff and and that mid-period stuff, I sat with a notepad and and when it came to recording it, I was sometimes struggling to remember a given song or what my terrible handwriting had uh, had meant. But with the Beatles, it was it was all in my head. I, you know, I I just know those songs so intimately now, every moment of them. That if they were somehow deleted from the universe, I would be able to play them back pretty much start to finish uh, in my head. Now, on the second part of the question. Will Political Beats listeners be hearing from you again soon? I hope so. It's not my call. I don't want to interfere. If uh, I am invited back, I think I would love to do... Well, here's a huge catalogue, and this would take some work, but I think I would like to do Ray Charles. I'm a huge Ray Charles fan. I I think Ray Charles is one of the great, great geniuses of, uh, of pop music, and... I'm just already blanching thinking how long that would take to record. I mean, they sometimes do three episodes on political beats, but I think you might even need four. I think Ray Charles did 55, 56 albums. How would we even do it? How would we even do it? As for whether I will have Jeff or Scott as guests on this podcast, absolutely I will. Within a few weeks, you will hear from one or other or both. And all that's left for me to do now is say thank you so much for listening. This has been the second episode of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. If you can't find the show on one of the services you wish it were on, just let me know. I'll make sure it's added. And other than that, I will see you next week.